From Luminary Media, this is LGBTQ and A. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I'm here today with Zach Stafford, one of our producers and the editor-in-chief of The Advocate. Oh my God, one of our producers. I love that. I'm going to just be that job every day. I want that for you too. <laughs> and then I'll take over as the editor-in-chief. Ha! Yes, we'll switch. <laughs> just kidding. All right, so Zach, you recently sat down and spoke with Robin Crawford. Yes. For those who don't know, why does that name sound familiar? So it probably sounds familiar if you are a Whitney Houston fan. And for those who don't know, who is Whitney Houston? Oh my God, don't do this Okay, fine. She, you know, Whitney Houston, the icon, the legend. I think our favorite pop diva. She's yours. She is mine. So she's everything. Um, she has obviously passed away. And in the wake of her death, a lot of people close to her have been coming forward with their own stories, uh, like her ex-husband, Bobby Brown, her mother, Sissy Houston. Um, but never before has her best friend, Robin Crawford, uh, come forward with her story. And the reason why is because her story is probably the most infamous because it dra it draws a direct line to rumors in the 80s that people have long forgotten, uh, or some people have not forgotten, but many have forgotten that Whitney Houston is a lesbian. And Robin Crawford's here to tell that story and tell the truths that are within it, which is very shocking, I think, to many people. And so she's speaking out for the first time. She's got a new book out called A Song For You, My Life With Whitney Houston. And we're gonna hear you talk to Robin today for the episode. As a lifelong Whitney Houston fan, as you said, what was it like to be in the room with her? Whew. I think for me, when we met in New York on a fall afternoon, uh, walking to a studio together, it made Whitney feel so much more human, I think. Uh, for a long time, I've seen Whitney as this god or icon or this angel of a person, but I didn't really think about the interiors of her life that much. I knew they existed, she had battles, but she was just always Whitney Houston. And sitting with Robin, I realized that Whitney Houston also had a best friend and she had family and she felt pain and she cried and she also didn't always know she was gonna be Whitney Houston. And I was able to sit with a person who got to tell me what it was like to know Whitney Houston before she was Whitney Houston. Uh, and it was just all so surreal and emotional. And there were a lot of tears that were had during our chat and a lot of feelings. And, you know, for me as a black queer person, Whitney Houston has always, beyond the rumors of her own sexuality, her songs have always been the soundtrack to our lives uh, in the clubs, uh, during breakups, whatever. You, I listen to I'm Every Woman when I'm having a bad day. Um, and I think being with Robin, who is a queer woman, uh, she has a wife, she has two kids, um, and she is the person that's probably the closest to Whitney Houston her whole life made me understand why we as queer people feel so close to Whitney because queerness was so present in her life. That is amazing. And so now with this new confirmation, for lack of a better word, that Whitney Houston had relationships with men and women, how do you think that recontextualizes the legacy of Whitney Houston? Oh, that's such a good question. Uh, I think it, for me as a queer person, it makes me even more proud of her. I think for straight people who may have thought, you know, this isn't real, or this is like something that we're just talking about as a phase, but it's not a part of her identity. Then once you hear Robin's story and hear how Whitney definitely saw this as a part of her identity, um, she never called herself lesbian or bisexual, but she saw loving everyone and being open to all types of love as quintessential to life in her life. Uh, I think it will make people realize that Whitney Houston was on a journey and we were sometimes as people bumps in that journey and I think the car went off the tracks or however that metaphor goes um, and we had something to do with that but society had something to do with that um, and I think when you listen to her story now you will have a, a renewed sense of sadness even to know that Whitney Houston was just trying to live and life got in the way. Amazing. Now let's get to the interview with Robin Crawford. So Robin, 
For years, the world has talked about you and your relationship with the late and great Whitney Houston, but you yourself have not said a word until now. Your book, A Song for You, My Life with Whitney Houston, is now out. And finally, after years of speculation, gossip, and rumors, your story is here. So the big question on everyone's mind as we begin our conversation today is, why now? I have to say that I found comfort in my silence. I lived a beautiful, magical moment in my life that I couldn't even have imagined. I couldn't even have dreamt that. And Whitney was a incredible, simple person in the most beautiful idea of quality that anyone could dream of. When I met this young lady, she was 16 years old. She introduced herself to me like I had never heard anyone else. How so? Hi, what's your name? Whitney Elizabeth Houston. All the three names. She had a handle on it. <laughs> Nothing else behind it, but this is me. And when I showed up that day, I had no plans of working a summer job. And then she shared with me her dreams as we got, you know, we were around each other a couple of days. And she told me she was a singer. <laughs> I hadn't heard her sing anything. She just said, I'm a singer. And I told her I'm going to college and back to school and a new school. And then she went on to say, I'm going to sign a recording contract. It was definite. Everything mm -hmm. with her was definite. There was no wavering. I want to be this. So I'm setting all this up to say I've lived it mm -hmm. with her. I've lived friendship in the purest, naked, open, honest way with a person, which is what I believe a friendship should be. It's what I prayed for, like someone who would just love me for me. And when I left Whitney's company, I had all that with me, all those memories, everything that we shared together in confidence, so there really wasn't any reason for me to say anything mm. because I had that all with yeah. me. It was mine. That said, over the years, there were almost like the rumors that surrounded us then and the negative tone had set in. I could feel it and I could hear it. And even then, when my silence was shaken after her passing, I didn't know what to say. I certainly didn't want to be pushed to say anything. I wanted it to be, I could feel that I wanted it to mean something. Something purposeful. Something thoughtful and considerate. I came to a point where I felt obligated to stand up, mm -hmm. you know, to honor her, to honor Whitney Houston, to embrace our friendship. A lot of people spoke on our friendship, mm -hmm. 
They had no idea what it felt like. Well, let's dive into the felt like, because something that struck me in the book was, you know, there's a summer 1980, which you've already referenced, is when you go off to the local community center and you're going to take a job. And Whitney Houston is there. You meet her. And you write in the book that she stopped you in your tracks in many ways, to paraphrase. Walk me back to that moment. What was it about her that made you not only stop speaking and kind of lose all sense of your body in a way, but I think for me reading it on a molecular level, something about your body knew your life had just changed. Why do you think that was? I didn't exactly know that my life had changed until I started spending time with her. But at that moment, there was something about her presence that I hadn't ever seen. There were a lot of people in that room. Mm -hmm. It was packed. She was sitting in the back in a chair, like sort of in the dark. And my job was, I was just passing out papers to people. And when I got to her, it was just... This beautiful face, like a really simple beauty, but well put together, and she was just there. And for some reason, at that moment, I did not miss it. I felt everything that I was looking at. She was beautiful. Beyond her being beautiful, and you all had a genuine friendship together, you immediately become inseparable. Why do you think, or what do you think you both provided to one another that made you force together? I think what took precedent at that time was Whitney had a dream. I was open to companionship and friendship. She was the same. She was looking for it. And I didn't know that she was looking for it. And she didn't know I was looking for it. But we connected on that, I, be, I believe, mm-hmm. emotionally. But once she began to tell me her story and walk me through the music business, one of the things that we had in common that held us together was our love of music. This is the 80s. Mm-hmm. And back then, it was albums with liner notes. And the artwork spoke to you. You would buy the album just because of the way it looked. But then you spent time reading it. So she talked very visual and painted a picture of the process of the music business. And having a friend walk that with you was how she was pulling me in. Mm -hmm. And that was around the time she said, stick with me and I'll take you all around the world. This is 16. (laughs) She hadn't done anything yet. That's so confident. (laughs) She spoke it into existence, Mm -hmm. but she worked. And it does. And you get that from the book that you guys, you know, fulfilled every part of your lives together. You had a very intense friendship. Um, You helped her grow in her own business. But there's also the romantic part that does come up. And I Mm -hmm. feel as if in the teenage years, that's when it really was a bigger thing as you read the book. And, you know, while we didn't use language or you all don't use the language of gay or lesbian when you're talking about this, Mm -hmm. um, you don't really have words you use. So I'd love to ask you, like, how were you all talking about that part of your relationship back then as things did get intimate? And you all, you know, and and it gives us evidence of why people did want to call you both lesbians. Mm -hmm. You have to first understand the time. The, The 80s. I feel like we were at the forefront of everything. Mm -hmm. Everything that was here today in a big way, you were either 
this or that. You were either R&B or pop. Whitney did not like labels. Mm. I don't sing black. Mm. I don't sing white. I sing. But there was a category for everything. That was the time of coming out. That was a huge thing then. Our love that we experienced, we were intimate on every level. Mm -hmm. We were friends. That's how our, that's how we came together as friends. We got to know each other in an open, bare, you know, naked way. The feeling that we felt between us, there was a moment we shared. It was physical. We weren't ashamed of it. But we were preparing ourselves for the big business, which was huge at that time. When I mean huge, the machine was four times the size that it is now. It was, you know, meet and greets at radio stations. There were huge record stores like Tower Records. There were meet and greets there. You were constantly under the spotlight Mm -hmm. promoting your product. And if you were a woman, women were rivals, Mm -hmm. not colleagues. Or, you know, you were constantly against each other. That was not who Whitney was. And the love that we shared... It was deep, and one day we decided, before her career really took off, before she recorded her first album, that if people found out about us, they would use it against us. Mm -hmm. So we made the determination then to not be physical any longer. I mean, we sat down and made a conscious decision that we would not do this. And even though if she wanted to, like Whitney was, she spearheaded Mm -hmm. this. I loved her. I would have gone ahead with it, just like we were caring for each other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we wanted to touch, I would have. But... It was important to me to, for our love to be unconditional, and nothing ever changed the way we, we, we were truly connected. We just sacrificed the physical. And that moment is in the book, and it's really, you know, illuminated by Whitney coming, I think, home one day with a Bible. Mm-hmm. And she hands you a Bible and has this conversation. It was in a box. It was in a box. I did not know it was a Bible until I opened it. Mm. So take me back to then. What was it like to get this gift? You know, Whitney, for context, had just, you know, signed with Clive Davis. Uh, her career was floating right in front of her. The world was floating right there for her. And she gives you this gift and has this conversation. What did it feel like then? Hmm. I could see it. I was sitting on my bed, and she came in. She said, I have something for you. And she handed me a box, and I opened it. No one had ever given me a Bible in a box. Mm -hmm. 
or a Bible period. We have Bibles in the home, yeah. but this was a gift. And um, she's, it was signed to me from Whitney E. Houston. It was 1982, and it was February, I think, 13th. And um, to Robin D. Crawford. And she said, you know, I don't think we should be physical any longer. And it felt like, for that moment, it felt like, though I wasn't totally surprised that this was that moment, because it is the 80s. Of course. I was jolted by it, but we were we were still so close, and we had a path ahead of us, and I was there. I was right there mm-hmm. with her. We were there together, and we took turns inscribing on the back of the Bible, on that last page, sharing what our love meant to each other and how devoted and loyal we were going to be through this process, how it was our secret. I'll use the word secret. It was ours, but God saw it too. Mm -hmm. We both believed in someone bigger, and um, that's where we left it. You have a really beautiful quote in the book that kind of describes what you just said. And you say, it wasn't all about our sleeping together. And you continue to say, we were friends. We were lovers. We were everything to each other. We weren't falling in love. We just were. We had each other. We were one. That's how it felt. And you went on to describe that that relationship was between the two of you and God. Religion is a big theme throughout Whitney's life and your life and the people around her. And Sissy seems that she's very aware of you all's relationship and she's watching it because she thinks, and she said this later on in her life, that God, she doesn't believe God likes this. How did you all find the strength to know that God still loved you both, even though you were having this secret? You know, it's funny. Sissy does speak of our friendship and that we care deeply for each other. So she knew that for herself. She always says that she didn't know anything about the physical part. She knew that friendship was thick. Mm -hmm. And we cared for each other deeply. Religion. I wouldn't say that Whitney was a religious person at all. She was a spiritual person and a lover of Christ. She had the utmost faith in the power of the blood. She used, to, she used to say to me, if you call on the blood, the size of a mustard seed, and you believe it, mm-hmm. you believe in that small seed, things will happen. After this moment of the Bible passing, you both move in together. And what I found really fascinating was that that Bible becomes this kind of symbol for you that you put in your bedroom and you see it every day and it hangs above your bed. And you, Whitney, 
begin to sleep in separate beds, but you also begin to really invest in her life. You've left college. You no longer work. You were working at airline for a little bit. You don't have that job. Your job is your devotion to Whitney Houston. I sold a car too, <laughs> to Whitney. <laughs> so, so everything you gave to her. Did that ever scare you back then to give up so much of yourself or give so much of yourself to one person? Mm, no, I mean, I made a decision because I believed in, I believed what she was saying. I saw a future for myself. I saw someone who wanted me with them to work, not just, you know, hanging around. Mm -hmm. I had duties and we were growing together. And that was important to me mm -hmm. to bring my A game. Every day, you know, I had a professional mom. <laughs> My mom showed me, you work for what you, what you want, you can get it. So I was busy. You were, you were hustling. 24-7 with her, and it was great. Mm -hmm. It was exciting. It was everything that she said she was going to do, yeah. and some. Yeah. She wasn't speaking in terms of hit records and, you know, I'm going to do movies. All that came. She just said, I'm going to sing. I'm a singer. I'm going to sign a deal and stick with me. I'll take you. And I love that you keep talking about Whitney in, in the ways in which you say, stick with me. She was very, very devoted to you. And she's said this many times. This has never been a question. You look at the, the, the album art and she writes letters to you constantly in those. And I think what I found really striking was as she, her star rose, um, the paparazzi is always around and you both begin to end up in the news a lot. There's moments you go to the grocery store and you see your face there. And the rumors about Whitney being a lesbian are never ending. Uh, but Whitney does something really fascinating back then is that she doesn't turn away from them. She talks about them. What was that like to hear her be asked these questions constantly and her to talk about your relationship in public? She didn't like it. Because they were saying she was something and she wouldn't accept that. They never said what we were, mm -hmm. which were friends who cared deeply for each other, who experienced something wonderful. It was like they wanted it to be this or that. Mm -hmm. And that's what she pushed back against because we protected our love. It wasn't like we were hiding it. It was ours. I think she felt on the spot all the time, like they were digging for something. Who are you dating? Like she was supposed to be dating someone. She was supposed to be this, or she was supposed to be that. She felt like she was giving mm -hmm. all of herself. And believe me, she was. But that belonged to her. And she was protective of me. That's, I mean, Whitney was very protective of those that she loved. And she felt responsible I mean, she said that to me. You didn't ask for all this. I, 
I, I got you here. And I said, no, I came willingly, mm-hmm. you know. No one ever really asked me. I, I was asked like once or twice. And really, at that time, it was, you know, about her getting married. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I said, you hear anything. I tell my family, you, you'll hear anything on the street. But if you don't hear it from me, then it's not true. And at that time, we were no longer physical. So in our minds, it wasn't true. Um, reading those lines again and rewatching the interviews in which she does talk to people and say, you know, there's a quote here. I forget which interview this was, but she says, uh, I don't make it a habit of putting it out in the street who I'm sleeping with or who I'm with, my private life. That little piece of my life is mine. I want to keep that. Not that I'm sleeping with this one or that one. I'm not a promiscuous person like that. You can't establish a relationship in the eye of the public. And what you see so much from Whitney over the years and in your book is that she's saying, you know, I give so much of you. She began every concert with saying, I'll give you a little piece of me if you give me a little piece of you. And she thought she was making big offerings, gifts to people, but she just wanted to keep you all's relationship and her other relationships private and to herself. And looking back on that, I think of this as incredibly brave that she would even talk about it. But at the moment, did you ever think, because so many people have done this, that she would at one point stop talking to you because it got too hard? Was that ever something you worried about? Stop talking to me? Yeah, you know, as the press continued to hound her, did you ever worry that, okay, one day there's going to be too much? Because she, people forget this. Whitney was constantly getting hounded with these questions. And for many people, we see this today, when there's rumors, they just stop talking to that person. But Whitney never did that to you. Yeah, no. No, she was loyal. I mean, that saying, forget about what it sounds like, how does it feel? That's the true barometer. She never made me feel like it was my fault. Mm. That wasn't her. She didn't take her love back. If she said she loved you, she fought for you. That was just her way. But people need the quiet too. And I, I think, you know, when the noise is at home and it's just as loud as it is outdoors and it's kind of, you know, it makes you stick your head in the sand. Mm-hmm. Then what you say, you're angry. And I, I think it was too much. No. It became too much. Again, it was the 80s. It was a time where you didn't get a choice. You had to declare yourself this way or that way. And neither one of us were people that allowed ourselves to function Mm -hmm. in a box. We were living life to the fullest. And we were fearless, ready. So we thought. We weren't ready for the system of things. Mm We were we were trying to navigate it wholesomely and, you know, and just do our jobs. But it it was a lot. And you two seem to be really steadfast in that kind of operation of, you know, you're going to let these rumors keep going. We're just going to live our lives, do our thing. And I think when we look back and through your book, a big pivotal point for me of when that narrative shifts, and I think you shift your own relationship in Whitney's life, is when Bobby Brown enters the picture. And that becomes a big obsession for the media. Talk to me about the first time you met Bobby Brown and what were your impressions of him then? The first time I met him was at the Soul Train Music Awards. 
He was, you know, Bobby Brown, my prerogative. Every little step, I love that video. <laughs> it's a good video. It's a really good yeah. video. I remember Bobby's Abercrombie. I can't Amber say Crombie? it. Yeah. yeah, his ad. It was dope. I never knew or got a chance to know Bobby personally. Mm-hmm. I think I write in the book, I never had a substantial conversation yeah. with him. I heard the rumors uh, about him. You know, he was a womanizer, you know, but he, Bobby and I were cool. Yeah. Contrary to all the talk that we were yeah. boxing each other. Not true. Yeah. And I feel like you'd have to be cool to be that intimate to Whitney. Like she kept a private life, a small circle. You were very close to her. So this feels like you guys, at the beginning, it wasn't confrontational at all. Mm-mm. It, you know what? It never was confrontational. I respect, like Whitney's mother, we didn't go at it yeah. with each other. I respect my best friend's mother. You know, you don't go around, you become part of each other's family. Exactly. And that's the truth. Bobby, what I did not like later on that I saw is is his behavior, you know, while Whitney's working. You know, Bobby could be very disruptive. Mm. That I didn't like. But other than him as a person showing me any disrespect or he, he never came to me and said, addressed me and asked me anything ever. Mm -hmm. But he would, he could show out, I call it perform. He would perform anywhere, anytime. I'm talking, it could be the White House. It could be, you know, a camera in Whitney's face, an MTV or someone's talking to him, and he could show out. So that is what I would see him do. And I didn't respect him Mm. at all. Mm. And what did you think the role he played in Whitney's life when he appeared? Because you, for years, were the support system. You ran the business. You did all these incredible things for her. But what do you think he brought to her life that she needed at that time or she thought she needed? Well, Whitney told me she loved Bobby when we were alone one evening and she said, Bobby asked me to, to marry him. And um, she said she thought she was going to do it. Earlier interactions with Bobby was that she wasn't going to get serious with him. Mm. Now this is, you know, they were just having fun together. You know, she was more passionate and more interested in Eddie Murphy. Mm. What Bobby gave to her, she didn't talk to me about. She had a child that she loved. She said he was a, a good father to his children. So... He gave her an opportunity to have a family of her own, her own life with someone that she chose to marry, become one. And I hoped that it would be everything that she imagined to herself. Mm. 
because she never shared that with me. She just told me how she felt about him. Mm. So this part in your book, you know, I think things move a little quicker and you both, um, your lives are both growing. Whitney continues to be incredibly famous. Bobby Brown, there's lots of controversy around him. But in the early 2000s, there seems to be a falling out between the two of you, you and Whitney, that you all aren't as close anymore. Talk to me about when your relationship changed and you all stopped speaking. You know, we never stopped speaking. There was some distance. Mm-hmm. But Whitney and I had gained, had gained a ability to communicate without talking. Mm-hmm. But the year 2000, when I made the decision that it was best for me to leave her company, that never meant in my mind, in my heart, that I was leaving my friend. I was always there. She knew that. But I didn't have her ear any longer. There were so many people around. I didn't feel like I was being effective. She was just really distracted. I couldn't get to her. You know, there were so many people around. Even even through business, there were we had two companies on the side of Nippying together that mm. she and I were to work on, but everyone was pulling at her yeah. for what they wanted. You know, what was important to them. And you know, Whitney would shift to help. Yeah. That that was her nature to make it happen. So I wanted her, I wanted to sit down and talk with her. We'd been together over 20 years. I wanted to take the moment to share with her why I felt it was necessary that I move forward and what I saw. And I wanted to know where her head was. Mm -hmm. You know, I always knew that when, just like Whitney said, what she wanted to do when she said she was done, it was going to stop. I knew that. But I saw her and spoke to her the day I handed in my resignation. She called me that night. Um, So you're really leaving, huh? You're really going, huh? Yeah. That's not somebody that wants you to go bye-bye that picks up the phone and calls you. But obviously she wasn't ready yet. um, And she called you many times over the years, and you all saw each other, so it wasn't like you disappeared completely. We saw each other through work. We never found time to see each other for a cup of hot chocolate or kicking it, you know, talking like we used to. We could pick up right where we left off. Anyone who has a close friend, you don't have to talk to them all the time. You pick up that phone, you just pick Mm -hmm. right up where you left. So no, we never got the opportunity to have a Robin Whitney sit down. She was still moving yeah. pretty fast then. And at that moment, you you write that, well, when you read the book, you'll understand that you begin to have to rebuild or build a new life for yourself. Mm-hmm. You go through a job search, you're thinking about things differently. But I think you also are allowed to think who Robin Crawford's going to be post-Whitney and a love comes into your life. Talk to me about those first few years of post-Whitney being so close when you start to build the life that I think is your life now or what I understand to be your life now. Well... You're talking about my wife, yes. Lisa, Lisa mm-hmm. Hintelman. Yes. My everything. I met Lisa 
during Bodyguard. Mm-hmm. One of the partners at PMK, which was the top public relations firm then, uh, signed Whitney, and Lisa was the was the person assigned the account, and I was the point person for Whitney. There was nothing intimate going on between us at that time. It was purely business. But I did feel something, a connection with her. When I left Whitney's company, I had been with Whitney. That was my first job, really. So all I knew was Whitney World. And you sort of lose your identity when you're a part of someone's, you know, everything's about them, you're doing, you know, you're working close to them. That's what it is. But when I was ready to leave Los Angeles, I really felt the need to know where I had been, Mm -hmm. to go back over all the things and places and everything I had done up to that point. And only one person could tell me that other than Whitney, and that was Lisa. And I picked up from the bodyguard stage. That's 1991, too. Mm-hmm. And um, she was able to walk me through the kind of person that I was then, what she saw, looking at our company and looking at me. And I did have a physical moment with her after she left PMK, but I wasn't an open loving person. I was hiding. I was hiding then. We'd walk down the street. I had a great time with her, but I wouldn't let her hold my hand because I still felt the need to not add fuel to the fire. So I was still thinking about Whitney. I was still connected to that world. I never wanted to make her path more difficult. She had even grown to say to me sometimes, when you're out there, you're representing me because that everybody looked at me, they saw her. So it wasn't totally untrue what she was saying, but I wasn't all there yet either. You know, I had to learn how to take care of myself and go back and fix some of the things that I was running away from. Mm-hmm. And that was loss and the death of my brother the death of my mother, and the loss of my best friend Mm -hmm. to a degree. She was still in my heart, but it still was a loss. I couldn't get to her. You write in the book about your brother and mother both being HIV positive and dealing with that during the epidemic. And it does feel as if, you know, you had to go through so much heartbreak from losing them, losing Whitney in many ways, to finally find love and stillness. What was the moment that you woke up and realized, okay, I can, I can move on now. I can create this life. Oh, I woke up and realized. I think it was, there came a point in my life where I was ready to share myself with someone. I knew how to be a friend, but I had no idea what, a rela- what it took to have a relationship But I knew Lisa cared about me. I always felt that she cared about me. The time that we had spent together prior to me becoming whole. But she gave me an ultimatum that either I go to therapy 
or she wouldn't even consider allowing me to be part of her life. Now here, this is someone that you've been having a great time with and you've grown to understand what you want out of life. And I've gotten to the point where I had to be open and share everything. I was afraid of death. Mm. It was another thing. But my mother and brother were never HIV positive. When they both were diagnosed, they were diagnosed full-blown AIDS. AIDS yeah. Once I went into therapy and I cried about those things, I always thought crying meant weakness. But it didn't mean weakness. It meant letting those things flow out of you and facing them. And after I did that, then I saw myself. I have to give that to Lisa because had she not encouraged me, I probably would have held all those things safely inside me where I thought they belonged and they didn't. Mm -hmm. How's it felt to heal from all of that and to build this life and to get here now where you can tell the story? Mm. In a funny, not a funny way, but in a strange way, before I really knew what I was going to do to share my story, I asked Whitney, I said, what would Whitney want me to do? And would she understand the now? And once I got that answer, I knew then that to relive the 80s, mm -hmm. all the way to sitting down in front of you, something I never envisioned mm -hmm. myself, speaking publicly, she knew that I would do right by her. She knew that I would put her first, I would do my best, because once I share my story, is no longer mine. So I wanted, my intent is to lift her legacy, honor my best friend, because she is a real person, you mm -hmm. know. She deserves that. And in doing so, embrace a loving friendship that I feel so blessed to have had that I can sit here today and stand up proud and let people know that this young lady was everything that they imagined her to be. You've mentioned that this all happened in the 80s a few times, and that is an important context, you know, culture change was happening, the AIDS epidemic is hitting, Mm -hmm. Black communities were still under siege in the ways they still are today. But dream with me for a second of what your relationship would look like if it wasn't in the 80s, but set today. Where do you think the future would go? Mm. You mean with, with, with Whitney? Whitney. Mm. Oh, wow. I can't speak on behalf of her. Yeah, but, but for you. I mean, shoot. I mean, in an imaginary world, mm -hmm. the love that we had and what we shared if it was like this then, oh man, I don't even know where that would have been. Maybe we would have been on some island somewhere with that lemonade stand that she kept <laughs> saying she envisioned. 
I don't know. You know, Whitney was, she was something else. That girl was something else. Mm. I feel like she's been with me this throughout this entire process. I wouldn't have been able to envision everything just like it was. Mm. I mean, I really kept all those feelings and those thoughts right there, like, oddly for this moment. Mm-hmm. It's almost like my task, like I was meant to do it. If all of this was happening for certain reasons and kind of all moved together and led you to this moment, what do you hope people take away from your story? What do you want to see happen next? I want people to know that above all, Whitney and I were loyal, dedicated, loving friends. She was not only an extraordinary artist who shared her gift from the depths of her soul, but she was a beautiful person in the simplest way. And that I hope my children, I'm raising them to be free and confident in themselves and who they are. And the cautionary tale that drugs are negative. I just hope that people don't feel like they have to ask any more questions. And that Whitney's legacy can ebb and flow the way she, like, blew it up there. All right, Robin's new book is called A Song for You, My Life with Whitney Houston. Zach, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, where can the good people find you when you're not producing this podcast? Oh my God, on the internet. I'm on the twitter.com at Zach Stafford. Uh, Facebook, I don't really use, but also you can read The Advocate at advocate.com or watch me every morning on Twitter through AM to DM, the morning news show of Twitter by BuzzFeed. Amazing. Zach, you can film for me anytime. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Luminary Media, Neon Hum Media, and The Advocate. The Advocate magazine is the world's leading LGBTQ news source. Come check out our website at advocate.com. LGBTQ&A is produced by Jonathan Hirsch, Zach Stafford, John Asante, Jordan Gosperay, and myself with sound engineering by Mark Bush. We'll see you next week.